Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 91. Have you ever wondered what it would look like if you looked at your business from the eyes of a buyer and why someone would actually want to buy your business and what process they would go through in order to value it and then actually determine whether it was a good investment for them or not? Well, that's exactly why I've got Bobby Kingsbury on the show today. He is a partner at MCM Capital, which is a niche manufacturing private equity firm. And I've got Bobby on the show today for a couple of reasons. One, even though he's already been on the show, we wanted to dive further into what is it that buyers are looking for? How do they make their investments? What are they doing through the due diligence and looking at the financials, the team, the clients, and how are they actually valuing that and mitigating their risk so that way they can actually partner up and reap the upside? And I really think that hearing it from someone that you could potentially be sitting across the table from and hearing what it is that they're looking for will allow you to look at your business and the things that you're doing in light of making your business more sustainable and valuable because you're mitigating the risk for whatever buyer it is. And the other reason that I wanted to have Bobby on the show is because as a private equity firm, I think a lot of really bad preconceived notions are out there about private equity firms. And there is a lot of predators that are out there. And there's certain people that are doing it right. And I believe that Bobby and his team are doing one heck of a job and they need to be highlighted for that. And I think hearing it from them and how they approach it, you'll be able to take away after this episode, the questions that you should be asking as these private equity firms and family offices and investors are out there fishing, looking for investments, and you don't waste a bunch of time going down the road because you ask the right questions and the right things up front, knowing how you're validating whether that's a potential opportunity you want to pursue or not. And just a little note too, that this is episode one of a two-part series because the next week we are going to have Bobby and Mark, which is the CEO of one of the companies that Bobby and his firm has purchased and invested in. And you're going to be able to hear from the seller's perspective on how they went through the process and how a business seller can interact with a potential buyer and the things to look out for and whether Bobby was completely full of crap in this episode or not. So I think this is an unbelievably valuable episode with all the takeaways you're going to have on how you should look at your business from the perspective of a business buyer. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy part one of this two-part series. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Morning, Bobby. How you doing? I'm doing well, Ryan. How are you? Good. I'm excited to have you on the show again. Um, it's been a year and a half or something like that since uh, you and I um, were on the show uh, chatting about your world and private equity and uh, how things have been going. But the last uh, 18 months has been pretty interesting for you. And you know, the purpose of today is really diving into your your experience as a buyer and looking at the companies that are out there within your niche and really being able to you know kind of peel back some layers for the owners so they can understand what you look like and what you're looking for when you're looking at these businesses as an investment as a partnership and and a, and a future uh, together so maybe for the listeners give a little bit of background of MCM capital again and then you know 
explain to us what niche that you're in and why you're you guys focus on that. Sure, happy to do it. And first, you know, we we don't have horns like all people think that private equity do. We're not the devil. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's actually some great, there's some great private equity firms out there with a lot of good people. Um, and hopefully, you know, more business owners start to, uh, to find those groups. But I mean, in any case, uh, MCM capital has been around for, for 26 years. For the last 26 years, we've had the same mantra is investing in niche manufacturers and value added distributors, 15 to $75 million in annual revenue and two to $8 million of EBITDA. And how we define niche and value added, as we describe manufacturers and distributors, is through the gross margin profile of a business. You know, businesses can run really lean, can drive down costs, uh, especially in terms of SG&A, but you can't hide revenue over cost of goods sold. So for niche manufacturers, we look for businesses generating 35% plus gross margins and value added distribution, at least in our mind, is 25% plus gross margin. And for the last 25 years or 26 years, we've been partnering with incumbent management teams. You know, we've done the 100% buyout, management buyout, but generally speaking, we, lo- we focus on leverage recapitalizations, which generally means the business owner sells a majority of his or her interest to MCM and they maintain the operational control of the business. They continue to run the company uh, moving forward. They're able to put the money in their pocket mitigate some of their uh, personal risk, as well as provide equity. We provide equity to the broader management team to get everybody rowing in the same direction. So generally, that's, that's how we've worked with businesses for the last uh, 26 years and how we will continue to do so moving forward. So, you know, for our listeners in debunking some of the private equity, you know, notions that are out there and kind of like you, even like you said, you don't have horns. And I, I think that there's such a wide spectrum and people don't realize it until they go down halfway through a journey with someone, they realize that they don't even have the money. And can you just maybe Bobby, just a couple of broad brushstrokes on how many private equity firms are out there and, you know, where do you get your money and how, what are some of the other models that are out there? And because I believe that you guys are different and almost more towards the family office model than it is more towards some of the other people that don't even have their funds. So, you know, just maybe set a little bit of context for the listeners. Sure. So, um, you you know, to put a number on private equity funds, Ryan, I, I couldn't even give that number. There's, there's thousands. Um, And, you know, each private equity firm, really they're segmented by, by size of their fund. And what I mean by that is the size of your fund really allows you to invest in a certain end of the market. So for us, currently, we're a $75 million fund. And as a $75 million fund, you know, we're, we're smaller than 85% of, uh, of private equity funds, 75% of private equity funds. And we focus on the lower middle market. So if your fund is larger, you're focusing on larger businesses. If your fund is smaller, generally speaking, you're focused on on smaller businesses. And our money generally comes from us. Uh, it comes from high net worth individuals, business owners who have exited their business, uh, who believe in what we're doing and want outsized returns. It comes from institutions like uh, re- regional banks. And it also comes from endowments and state pensions. Uh, generally speaking, the majority of our dollars come from the institutions and endowments, but the majority of our investors are the high net worth individuals, business owners who have exited their business. And we like to have those folks invested in MCM because they're a great resource for us. Usually they've been through the process is how they've attained their net worth 
and we can leverage their skill set or expertise as we look at evaluating different opportunities. Well, and I think, you know, really following the money is an important thing too, because you know, in it's all about finding the motivation, even for your investors, which then goes down to you, which goes down to why you buy these companies. So, you know, explain, you know, when someone gives you a chunk of cash and whether it is an endowment or a bank or an investor, what are the terms and conditions and what are the, what are the conversations that you're having? Because then we'll flip the, the conversation going towards the, 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 the buy side of what you're doing. But what are the things that they're expecting from you guys? Yeah. So, um, Usually what they're expecting uh, are, are outsized returns. And it's the definition of outside returns certainly varies at any point in time. Specifically for a point in time today, outsized returns uh, in, in private equity would be, I'm going to be honest with you, probably 17% plus. You know, Historically, private equity firms have been underwriting at at least 25% returns, but there's such a overflow of capital. Uh, these days in the private equity market because everybody's looking for outsized returns. What you see in a lot of these state pension funds is that they're underfunded. Mm -hmm. their, their liabilities certainly outweigh their assets. So they're trying to find outsized returns in the marketplace. So they're flooding more dollars into a riskier asset class in private equity to try to get those returns to try to be made whole. Can I, can I give um, like a so, quick, and I don't know if you've heard this story, but I'm sorry to uh, interject because I think it's uh, relevant for the listeners where I was reading this article about um, Texas and I don't know if it was Austin, Houston or Dallas, can't remember which city it was, but they had run their pension numbers at, they could retire at 55. They had the underwrite, <laughs> yeah, already laughing, right? 55. Yeah. They, uh, I think they had run their uh, underwriters ran the numbers at like eight percent rate of return indefinitely, yeah. and they their mortality rate was like seventy. <laughs> so these yeah. people are yeah. living in retirement on the cash flow of the city for like forty five yeah. years at an eight percent rate yeah. of return. So they're they're literally going broke because they can't afford to pay all these people. That's exactly right. And, 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 you know, that actual actuarial data would have worked probably in 1930. Yeah. When everybody's dying um, at 45. But, <laughs> yeah, but, but today it just doesn't make any sense. So, you, you know, that's, that's a problem that a lot of state pension funds are, are faced. So they're flooding the, the equity markets um, with, with dollars to try to drive outsized returns, which in turn from, from an ownership standpoint, at least right now, I would never tell a, a business owner to be a market timer because at the end of the day, this is a, a once in a lifetime opportunity for, for most. And you would like to, to exit or take some chips off the table when you're ready and not trying to, to market time. But you know, to be honest with you right now, businesses are trading for ridiculous values that, isn't, that aren't sustainable. And you, you know, if, if you're a business owner and you know, it, but for us, when we're focused on leverage recapitalizations, where the incumbent own, ownership stays in the business, continues to run it, and you might be very excited that a private equity firm or a strategic buyer, or whomever, is going to come in and offer you, you know, one or two turns more than really what your business is is worth. You better hope that every bet that you make moving forward works, because the equity that you're going to have moving forward might not exist anymore. You know, it's it, it, and and I look at it from my perspective. If I was a business owner, it would be really hard to turn down an extra five or six million dollars. Okay, it it would be really hard. But I would look at how 
people are structuring that transaction because you have to always look at the amount of leverage being used. And the amount of leverage being used could prohibit you from growing the business further. And that equity that you had or retained mm-hmm. is going to be worth nothing. So, you, you know, you had, you had this deal up front where it was five or $6 million more and they had you roll some, you know, that, maybe that extra five or $6 million back into the business and it's going to be worth nothing if the business has a hiccup or a bump in the road because then the bank's going to own your business. So I'd be very careful you know, especially in this type of market, when you're looking at financial structure and how people are structuring the transactions in terms of amount, amounts of leverage that they put on your balance sheet. Well, and this is why I'm excited for, for our conversation, because I want to, I want to dissect everything that you kind of were talking about, because I think well, for every, there's so many business owners right now that are getting knocked on the door. And uh, my partner called it fishing. A lot of these people are fishing because they're trying to deploy their, their money. So it, it, that's yeah. why I started at the motivation, because if they're overpaying is because they're trying to pay for their obligations depending on where the money comes from. And I think that's what's unique about you guys is, you know, you're not necessarily promising the returns that these other people are promising because you can get money from these people easily because they're suffering as well. But how that impacts your ability to run your business going forward because of how much money you got and how much leverage you have, there's a lot of false assumptions that are placed on this that might not work. I would tell you that that we are promising those returns and actually, we had to, we have delivered on those returns. But what what I would tell you is is how we're different is that our pace of deployment of capital isn't the same as everybody else's because we're very patient, value oriented investors. We look for the right business and the right people. Now, given your LP base, so that's that's your limited partners, people who are giving you money, depending on who they are, whether they're fund of funds or um, which are large organizations that look to invest take people's money um, as a whole, and then invest in 10 or 15 other private equity firms. So it diversifies your portfolio risk. Those types of investors are looking for pace of capital deployed. So Mm -hmm. when we sign up with our LPs, we have five years to invest the money that we're given. The fund itself is 10 years. So by the time we buy businesses, generally speaking, you know, in the first five years, we should be have all of them exited in 10 years. Now that always doesn't work, right? Our average hold period is six and a half years. Mm -hmm. Um, So we hold businesses a little longer than most, but we're also uh, investing in lower middle market businesses or investing in great companies. But most of the time when you're a small business, you have one or two flat sides. And what we try to do is round out those flat sides. And with smaller companies, it just takes a little longer because we're investing for the future. And then some of the returns suffer from other private equity firms because they're paid, they, they, they have so much money that they have to deploy sitting on the sidelines. And now they're, you know, maybe they're in year five of their fund. And mm-hmm. I, if, if I was a business owner, I would always ask, where are you in your fund? Mm-hmm. Because at, at certain times, private equity funds feel so much pressure. If, if their money isn't deployed, it's not used. And your investor base isn't happy because now I allocated, you know, $20 million to MCM and they only deployed 15 of it. I had $5 million allocated to them that could have been earning money elsewhere. Right. So some private equity firms feel that, that pressure and they will overpay for a business to deploy that capital. So I would, if I was a business owner, I would always ask where the private equity firm is uh, in the life cycle of their fund. 
Well, I think it's so important because the questions that you just are arising is most owners don't know to ask these questions because it's all about the motivations. You just follow the thread to figure out where the behaviors are going to come from, which kind of trickles into the next part of the conversation, which is, you know, the ongoing partnership. And, you know, th- that's where you hear a lot of these horror stories because the, they overpromised, they overpaid, and then they've got to squeeze blood out of a turnip and it's you and right. your, your company and your culture and everything. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's extremely important. So let, let's maybe shift into when you're, you know, when, private equity firms and you guys are out there looking for businesses, you know, how are you finding them? And then let's kind of just walk through the whole process because, you know, starting from, you know, talking to them, you know, you're looking for two to 8 million. EBITDA. So how do you start the conversation? And then let's just kind of walk through the, the, the typical journey. Sure. So uh, historically, 75% of our deals are done outside of investment banking process. and we're, we're able to do that because we focus more on relationships than anything else. It's very tough to develop a true relationship and understand who that business owner is and vice versa as a business owner, who your potential partner is going to be in a, call it 90-day diligence period, right. and you, you meet them once during a management presentation, and you're supposed to evaluate. It, you, you know what it'd be like? It would be like going you know, online dating, going on one date, and then deciding to marry that person. Now, but sometimes that happens, right? You know, <laughs> love at first sight, that may happen. 99% of the time, it doesn't. So what we like to do is start to talk to businesses really before they get to that threshold for us. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when they're $5 million, when they're $10 million, when they're 15, you know, when we can start to d- develop a true relationship and without any expectations from either side, because both of us know, you know, that uh, from the, the business owner standpoint that they're not of size yet for MCM to invest in. And from our standpoint, the business owner isn't ready to do anything yet. So it's great to develop a relationship and have casual conversations without an expectation that a deal needs to get done. Mm-hmm. So o- over a long period of time, three, four, five years, we develop relationships with business owners and they, they see how we act, how we are as people, culturally do our interests align. And then it starts to, to make sense. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, value has to be there. You know, and we're not trying to steal any companies. What we're trying to do is develop relationships so both sides don't make mistakes. And in 26 years, we've never lost money on any leverage buyout we've ever done. And it, it, it's not because we're the smartest guys in the world, we're not. It's because of the, you know, we're very focused on the businesses that that we like to invest in, where we can actually add value. If we're only providing capital to the table, that's a commodity. I just told you how many private equity firms are out there. If we're only providing money to the table, we are not gonna drive outsized returns and shareholder value for the incumbent business owner, their management team, and then we always put in an incentive comp plan for the entire employee base, all the way down to the shop floor. Now they're not equity owners, But once you start to hit certain numbers, they're going to benefit from it too. We just spend a lot of time directly sourcing transactions. Now, we do have a lot of relationships with investment banks. We have to, because if you think about the life cycle of our relationship period, three to five years with business owners, and we only have five years to invest that money, you know, we have to, you know, look at businesses from intermediaries or from investment banks. But, but generally speaking, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, we're 99% of the time, we're not going to be the highest bidder. 
what we're going to do is really be a partner for the business owner and that retained equity that that business owner has, we're going to make damn well sure that, that, that it's worth something. You know, we will do whatever we can to work on a business to, to continue to grow shareholder value and not squeeze it. Like you said, trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip. You know, what we try to do is we grow the business organically and we forecast when we're modeling a company, we forecast a degradation to earnings in the first year, specifically because most of the time, you know, the executive management team isn't fully there. So we invest in resources from an HR standpoint. We invest in, in machines or CapEx. We invest in sales and marketing. And we know that that business was possibly not starved, but you know, it didn't have all the resources that they needed prior to our involvement. Well, and this is exactly why I, I'm, I wanted to dive in with you on this on this interview because it's not just about the turn and burn for the numbers because that only goes so far. When we're, when the, the the business owners that are listening to this, you're diving in to really see true value within the business, which I think really sheds light on your due diligence process and really building a company to sell. And where are the places that business owners are focusing on? Is it the right places? And where is this? "Quote unquote value that you see, and how do you actually like go in and do this stuff? Because I, I I do believe that a lot of business owners they're either starved financially because their banking relationship's terrible, or they're starved because mm-hmm. they don't have the right people, or the right processes, or the wrong connections in their supply chain. All these different things, right? Which it's about gluing yeah. them all together, layering the finances, but then also the people and the partnerships. So let's go in, Bobby. Like you know." Instead of just you know like the turn and burn and deploying the capital in ninety days like a lot of these other people are doing, you know, explain the due diligence process and what are people doing that they could be doing better and how do you apply? You know, like let's just start with the due diligence process. You know, when you find someone with you know two million in EBITDA, going through what are the things that you're looking for that they're doing well and then not doing well, and then how do you marry up what you guys do well with them? Sure. Um, so you know we do. I'd, Probably standard uh, business diligence. It's usually is going to take sixty to seventy-five days. And if you're a business owner listening, uh, don't underestimate this process. Uh, it is going to take you away from your business. Uh, we are very cognizant to try to be as least disruptive as we can to the business. But you know, in in the the second part of the series, uh, you can hear from from one of our CEOs that we partnered with. And he can, you know, give you really the, the the down and dirty of what the diligence process was was like. Um, you know, and, and I guess specifically how, how how it was from yeah from from our perspective. But you know, it's it's business due diligence where we really try to understand a company's competitive advantage, uh, a reason why they exist, and why are they going to exist moving forward? How are we going to grow this business together over the next five to to six years, it's getting in uh, an understanding of of their people. You know, when when we talk with the business owner, you know what what would you like to have? If you had endless resources, what people would you have? Do do you do you believe today that you have the right people and the right seats on the bus that are going to get you from point A to point B? If not, how do we add those resources? What do you need? From a financial standpoint, uh, you know we do a, a a quality of earnings. You know that's uh, we, we hire a, an accounting firm to come in and and do some forensic accounting, look under the hood, um, make sure you know as the numbers were represented to us that they are what they are. Um, obviously, if not, we have to answer to to our shareholders. 
And you know, we, what we, we want to do is pay a, a fair value for a business, but if the numbers aren't there, then obviously, you know, things might have to happen. And for the business owners that are on, on this call, what's becoming more commonplace today, and us personally, we, we like it. Now, the, the business owners will have to spend some money, but they will get a quality of earnings report done prior to somebody getting involved. And the reason that we like it, you know, is we're always very honest with our valuations uh, with companies. Some other firms are are not as as honest. It's, it's not all of them. Generally speaking, private equity firms, you know, back up what they say. But there's going to be some that are going to go in there and tell you your company's worth X, and really during this diligence process, hammer you on different things to say your business isn't worth X. It's worth Y. Now, if you get a quality of earnings done prior to getting involved, that eliminates any of the the possibly eliminates any of the things that they could possibly find to start to hammer you on on price. So this it's becoming more commonplace now for some folks to get quality of earnings reports done first. And if you want to spend the, I think it's around fifty thousand dollars to to do it and really ensure that that group, that partner that you're partnering with, um, is not going to to retrade. I would suggest doing it. So, um, we can, also do. Can I can I interject there too? Because yeah, go ahead. I, well, I think sure. maybe I want to take a couple of these uh, in chunks because Bobby, I think a lot of people don't understand how important this is when you're going in there. Whether it's you as a buyer or anybody is, you know, and I, and I think the financial is a good place to start because it's the foundation. And you know, explain because I, I mean. Shit, man, we didn't know our numbers, you know, the first time. Like, you know, you're yeah. just kind of readers running and gunning and selling and going and like and and when I say knowing the numbers, maybe let's let's layer that, you know, take a layer back. So let's say you do the quality of earnings, but like, you know, how clean someone's financials are and what does that even mean? Is it, you know, really having the PL and the balance sheet and everything where they actually know what it is that's happening in their business? And I think I had someone on the show and they said financials are the business or the language of business. So you start, you know, you're starting there. So explain, you know, what are the things that you're looking for? And then how do you, you know, how do you emotionally or like, because I, I know you're probably thinking about when you're sitting across from someone, someone that knows their numbers versus someone that doesn't and how that impacts your interaction with them. Yeah. So it's, it, it's interesting. Maybe, maybe I'm too nice of a guy, but uh, there's just an example. A, a few weeks ago, we were looking at a business that would be an add-on acquisition uh, for one of our portfolio companies. And the business was generating $7 million in revenue. And about, you know, if, when he sent me his financials, roughly uh, $180,000 of, of EBITDA with, you know, 35% plus gross margin. So for me, it didn't make sense. Uh, so I, I told the gentleman, I said, I'm, I, I'm assuming you're running this business as a lifestyle business. So there's a lot of things, you know, car payments, uh, country club dues, you know, a, a lot of things that are running through your business that shouldn't be moving forward. And he said, yes, you're, you're, you're right. I said, okay, so here's, here's what you're going to do. I want you to, t so pr pretend like you sold your business to MCM tomorrow. And we were the owners of the business and you were, you were no longer able to, you know, provide these, these lifestyle benefits. I want you to write all of those down and I want you to, to, to give me a value associated with them. And then what, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to add that back to EBITDA. 
And the reason that's important to you is because that's how I value your business. If I value your business, you know, say it's five times EBITDA of roughly 200,000 of EBITDA, your business is worth a million dollars. Now, if you bring these ad backs together and now it's 500,000 of EBITDA, now your business is worth two and a half million. So <laughs> I, I, I just want you to, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, you know, so in, in my mind and, and what I told him and what's, what, what's interesting is he said, you know, Bobby, throughout this whole process, I've never felt like you were full of shit. I, I never said one time during this process that you were full of shit. And you know, to me, that's a compliment, right? Um, but I, I, you know, what, it, what, what I told him is, this is, this is a once, I, I said, you have a wife, you have children, I can appreciate that. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity for you. And I want you to maximize, you know, the value of your business because I wouldn't feel good if, if you're going to continue and you're going to be a large part of our organization going forward, large part of our portfolio companies. I don't want you coming in the office pissed off every day right. that, you know, I, I got screwed. MCM should have given me this. They should have given me that. You know, I, I don't want to do that. It, it's, you know, life's too short. What, what, what we want to do is create win-win situations for everybody. And if we can't do it, then we can't do it. You know, if, if I got to, to, to him and, and ultimately what, what happened just the other day is, you know, he, he said, Bobby, I, I just can't do it. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid forties, you know, r- right now, you know, I, I think what you gave me is a fair value for my, my business. The problem is, is my business just isn't large enough yet for me to feel comfortable, you know, that, uh, I, I got a couple of kids going to college soon. And, you know, if, um, if, if things were to go into hell in a handbasket or, you know, I, I were to get fired and I told him, I said, I, I can't promise you the moon. I, I, I said, you know, can I promise you that, uh, you, you're going to have a job for the next five to 10 years? The, the, the answer is no, Matt, you, you know, so what's, what's going to happen is we're going to sign a two or three year employment agreement. And that's all that I can, can guarantee you things, things may change, but at the end of the day, it's not, my decision whether or not you stay, it's the CEO's decision. And if you continue to perform like you have been, there's no reason that you shouldn't be there moving forward. But, you, you know, it's, it's just conversations like that. And again, it's developing a relationship. Now, you know, a, a few years down the road when his business continues to grow and then he's, he's ready, he's more comfortable, you know, then I, I, I think it's an opportunity. So we just have, we're going to keep an ongoing dialogue and see what happens from there. So, yeah, and, and, and it takes time to build the relationships. And as you guys are going back and forth, there's a lot of this trust factor that's getting built. And I think, you know, whether in the due diligence process, it's the financials and all the things that you're looking for to, to, to be able to see, does it reflect the individual that's sitting across from you? So how would that be different for, for you know, someone that comes in with their financials all muddied all over and not only just add backs and all these different mm-hmm. things, but, you know, knowing literally where things are at or not. So a lot of, you know, uh, lower market companies, you know, they may, the owner might have that yeah. or the CFO that's just sharp. So would you pay more or tell me how that experience is or like when you have, you know, through the due diligence and the financials where you're asking questions about cost of goods sold or the, the different things as you're yeah. looking for the narrative, the financials, someone that totally has everything locked in and can at least answer your questions versus someone that can't, how does that impact the situation from trust and the value that you're willing to pay? Well, I, I, I would say it definitely impacts it heavily at the end of the day. Um, when we're talking to a business owner that knows the ins and outs of their business, you know, to, to your point, you know, the financials are the language of, of business. And if a business owner understands what aspects of their business affect, you know, the, the, the gross margin line, what affects the EBITDA margin line uh, from an inventory standpoint, inventory turns, you know, days of, 
uh, of AR outstanding, days of payables outstanding. What you, you know, how, how those interact, you know, with the business in terms of cash flow. You know, wh- where the company needs to needs to be if they want to invest in a certain piece of equipment. Um, can can they handle that forecasting? You know, it, it provides a lot more trust with us moving forward. That one, you know, the business owner understands the, the numbers, understands, you know, what they can do to, to affect the numbers. And we're, we're confident, more confident in the value that we can offer to a business owner versus somebody who, you know, really doesn't know the financials. You know, they have, you know, uh, their financials haven't been audited. You know, they haven't even been reviewed. Uh, they're, they're running QuickBooks. There's there's a lot of things that we see from and you know they don't have a, a, a controller you know, certainly not a CFO much less a controller they have a bookkeeper that's maybe not even a CPA you know doing the, the, their numbers we, we we have to really understand the veracity of their numbers and are are they true uh, so for <laughs> for us it's it, it, it's it's not it's not that we don't trust the business owner uh, because they could be a, a a great person trustworthy. But it's it's not trusting the numbers that are presented to us, and I think we would certainly be more comfortable. And I, I don't know if we would necessarily pay more, but we'd be more firm on our number. Well, and I think, uh, and I want to let's let's make sure we go back to the due diligence and other parts of it, um, from contracts and client concentration and technology and equipment and stuff like that. Let's make sure we go back to that. But I think it's a perfect example on. So if, if someone's completely got their stuff together and knows everything, you know, yes, the, so the dollar amount might be the same, but can you explain, Bobby, how you mitigate risk as certain uncertainties pop up? You know, so you, how does that affect the deal structure and the payments? So, you know, if everybody's, if, let's say you got the two ends of the spectrum, 100% cash down versus all earn out. I mean, how, like, in the, I know there's a lot of different you know, creative ways that you can structure things in between, but how do you mitigate your risk through deal structures and payments situations as you start to see things that are red flags like that? Yeah, well, you, you know, there's, there's, there's certainly different ways to, to do it. You know, the, the easiest way, um, what's becoming more commonplace now, similar to business owners getting a QOE done uh, prior to, you know, uh, having a private equity firm or a group look at, at their particular business is getting rep and warranty insurance. Um, so all the representations and warranties that a business owner is assigning, you know, to to the private equity group or backing, you know, all, all the representations he or she is is making are now being able to to be covered by by insurance. You know, you, you can get a five million dollar rep and warranty insurance for around two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and most of the time, both the private equity group and the business owner split the cost. So from um, a, a liability standpoint, from a business owner, you, you know, as long as um, things things are, are are disclosed, you know, and, and, and knowledge qualifiers are in there. To my knowledge, I, you know, we haven't had any of A, B, and C. Like, um, and explain that. And, like, so, like, you're talking like environmental, legal, like, what what are the things that yeah, you know, they might be discussing? yeah, all of it. it uh, you know, to to my knowledge, there have been no environmental issues at this property. And rep and warranty insurance, you know, will will certainly cover that. So from from an indemnification standpoint, purchase price, you know, it, usually some of it is held back for indemnification claims for call it, you know, twelve to eighteen months. You know, with rep and warranty insurance, you know, that million dollars, you know, million and a half, doesn't have to be put into 
the, the, the indemnification escrow because it's being covered by the rep and warranty insurance. So now that business owner will get more cash up front and not have to worry about whether or not there's there's going to be a claim or they're going to get uh, not get it moving forward. Does so, that make sense? No, totally. And I think you know it, it's it's a lot of totally. And I think it's a it's a great piece of advice. And I'm just there's so many different ways we can go with the deal structures. But it, it and I think the yeah. biggest takeaway is like and these are like as you filter down and you're you're looking at perfect partnerships, right? So let's maybe go a layer above of as you're looking at people and you're going not a fit. Because I mean, I know that there's you know, there's a lot of different good qualities of the the ideal partnership and how you're willing to work to make the deal perfect for them. But as you're as you're you know deselecting people, you know, and you're getting in that that due diligence process or in the you know the primary phase like that, the red flags and stuff like that. What are the things that you're so you got all the financials, um, but as you're doing some of the due diligence in whether it's contracts or technology or you know the employment or the the key managers, explain what you're looking for and what are the big red flags that will literally make you deselect them because it's not even worth paying for. Yeah. Uh, you know, what we try to do is uh, a, a lot of diligence up front before we put together an offer, but obviously you find things afterwards. So in terms of business diligence, you know, when, we, when we're looking at customers and usually I ask for the, the top 20 customers by revenue over the last five years, because we look for customer concentration. Our, the, the value that we pay for a business is always a function of risk. It's, it's always risk return. So from a customer concentration standpoint, what, what, what you'll see is, is maybe there's a large you know, Fortune 500 company, okay? And they have, call it uh, 25 locations. Now, when that business owner sent me their customers, you know, usually beforehand, we're not disclosing names um, or, or maybe they're named differently in their, in, in their CRM system, you know, that I, I would go through the customer list and now I'd see, okay, now there's, you know, 20 locations from GE, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, the business owner looks at each one of those locations as a different customer. But from <laughs> our standpoint, GE is one customer. Mm-hmm. And the, the risk profile then of the business changes now where you, you didn't have a customer that was larger than 9% of revenue. Now, when I add up all the GE folks and all their locations, Maybe that is now 50% of their revenue. And while they are different locations and, you know, most of the time from a corporate standpoint, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a corporate buying program. So that may change above the locations where they're saying, we're going to use a different supplier. Here's who you're going to use. And now all of a sudden, 50% of that revenue that we had for that business is gone. Mm-hmm. So when we see uh, certain things like that, when we see same thing with supplier concentration, you know, those... It, it, it would be very similar to to that. Obviously, it increased the the more supplier concentration you have, the the larger the risk profile is for us in in the business. So we wouldn't move forward, or you know, we would just say we, we do want to move forward, but because this concentration, you know, this is what the price is going to be. Now the business owner has to really decide if they would like to. Uh, to move forward. Let's take that. No, I, I think it's really applicable. And a lot of people have these issues with the, the large customer concentration or like, I mean, we were a Canon and a Lexmark manufacturer. I mean, we were a distributor. So we had, yeah. you know, they, we, we were diversifying through managed IT services and such, but like, I mean, they got us by the balls. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, okay, yeah. what, happened, what happens if they change their licensing or they, you know, they, at one point, I think when we like when we first started, they had geographical exclusivity and then they just said, well, nope. Not that anymore. So the next thing you got seven, not anymore. Yeah, yeah, seven people competing with you. But so even though that might be the scenario for a business owner, like 
if I were, if, if you and I were sitting across the table from each other and, and you're hammering me like this, mm-hmm. and I say, okay, that's fine. Uh, but I agree with you and I see that. What if I were to say, well, you know what? So GE, that is a scenario, but I've actually gone in and my team has landed a contract that has all the recourse for GE. And so that might be you know 40% of my revenue, but they cannot cancel that contract. And we've got certain minimum volumes that they are guaranteeing me over the next five years. Or the same thing with the supplier. Yeah. Is there a way, you know, because I'm mitigating the risk for me and for you. Is there like how do how do you view something like that? Well, so it's it's a very interesting question, Ryan. And and I would tell you if they're guaranteeing you volumes and it's a take or pay, I, I would say that mitigates the risk a lot. What what you see is, you know, long you know, for for example, in aerospace, Boeing's a customer. You know, if if you have a long term agreement in aerospace there in, in aerospace, there aren't a lot of uh, of customers, so you may have customer concentration in businesses like that. You know, where Boeing or Airbus maybe thirty or forty percent of of your revenue ultimately. Now, there's long term contracts in place. It's not take take or pay, but our our largest concern is not not the contract and not exclusivity because that that's great. It certainly helps. But now, Ryan, tell me. What if you know you you are forty percent supplier to to Boeing and you know you're 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 doing everything you're you're qualified you're on their A supplier list and now Boeing has several incidents in their plant and a few employees you know ha- happen to die or some planes crash you know and now Boeing is no longer manufacturing airplanes they're they're on hold for the next twelve months to figure stuff out what happens to your business right right yeah. Or so Elon from, Musk actually invents a Hyperloop yeah. and one rides any planes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, or, or or you're invested in Tesla. Now they can't produce cars. You know they're they're, they're way behind the curve, and they now they're running overtime. So from from our standpoint, if you have customer concentration, regardless, and now t- take or pay is different because basically you're guaranteeing me volumes. If you're guaranteeing me volumes, you know it's it's a little different, but still, you know you, you look at the mining and oil and gas industry, you can guarantee me volumes, then you're going to go out of business. And I'm stuck holding that. Even if you got the guaranteed payments, you know, if they go into bankruptcy or they filed, you know, chapter 11 or something, I mean, you are not highest on the debt list. I mean, they, there's people way no. ahead of you. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then you, you know, the, the problem is with customer concentration is that if, you know, your customer catches a cold, you're going to catch the flu or pneumonia. <laughs> and that's a problem. <laughs> that's, uh, that's amazing. I told, I, yeah. Because everything trickles downhill from that. And, and I yeah. think suppliers is a big, you know, I was actually meeting with a customer, um, Bobby, and, I, and, I, it, and this all comes up and it's so amazing how entrepreneurs don't look at their business like, a, like an, an investment vehicle like this. Because we were, sitting, we were sitting there talking, we we're doing preliminary due diligence and we were saying, hey, you know, so you've got a, a handful of suppliers and they're betting the horse on all these really cool innovations that they're doing for the future. And I said, well, you know, there's risk. And if you're riding these suppliers as your main horse, what happens if something happens to them? And then are you warranting a product or are they? And there was kind of like a head tilt because what happens? Who's, who's right. holding the warranty? <laughs> I mean, because... Yeah. And so, so it's it's interesting going back to, you know, when when, when you're talking about structure, you know, and I, I got into to rep and warranty insurance, you know, then there's the, the, there's these other, other times... You know, when you look at an earnout or or a seller note, uh, seller note is really just you know it's a guaranteed payment, but it's not upfront. It's you know twelve or twenty four months down the road. 
But mo- most of the time, you know, how you're bridging some valuation gap is, is an earnout. So a business owner is going to tell me, yeah, my, my business is worth X, to, X today, but, you know, uh, we're, we're scheduled to get a $8 million contract next year that's going to, you know, a annual revenue for the next five years guaranteed. Okay, how, how confident are you in it? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm 99% sure that, that we're going to get it. Okay. If you're 99% sure, then I'm going to give you an extra $5 million in terms of, of, of value over the next three years if you hit X, Y, and Z numbers based on, on this customer. And then you really understand <laughs> whether or not they truly believe in it or not. Now, right. it go, going into earnouts, I don't like earnouts, but particularly because you know we, we do leverage recapitalizations and we're partnering with incumbent ownership. I don't want that CEO to manage the business to hitting his or her earnout. What 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 I would rather do is okay if if you tell me that that this is going going to happen, how about if we you know hit hit overall numbers of the business? So I don't care whether or not we 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 get this or not, but if if we do, we're we're going to hit these overall numbers. And then what I would like to do is I'm going to let you buy back ten percent of the business for ten thousand dollars. So I'm going to give you a clawback. So if, mm. if we hit this. Now, now you get 10% more of, of the upside of the business moving forward because, you know, earnouts are all convoluted. It's, it's it, you know, fudging different numbers. What goes here? What, what goes there? Is a business owner, if the earnout's based on revenue, is it the law of unintended consequences where now, you know, they're taking lower margin business in just to hit these revenue numbers? I don't want that. I want everybody's, you know, motivations the same, rowing in the same direction. So I would rather have you know, overall goals of revenue and EBITDA. And then if you hit these, you know, over a certain time frame, you're going to earn 10% of the company again. Well, what I think is really interesting is you're starting to like, hopefully the listeners are starting to realize that it's all about negotiation and people both realizing that it's all about risk going forward and and the truth and the numbers and the forecasting and the strategy. And, you know, the opposite yeah. side too, which, you know, you were saying like, you don't want the business owner managing to the earnouts and, you know, doing decreasing margins because it's revenue based. So it's funny because the, the, I would say that as a seller, you want it to be revenue based unless you've got a creative structure like you just described, because a lot of the times, you know, these earnouts would be uh, margin based whether it's, you know, a certain mm-hmm. profit center or EBITDA or something. But guess what? The moment they sell to someone like you, they're not in control of the EBITDA anymore or the profit. So by exactly the way, right. you know, you're looking to hit your quarterly bonus. And by the way, I think we're going to buy a semi today. And yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, you don't, well, well, you don't get your 500 grand. Yeah. And, and, and that may be true. But, you, you know, for, we, we let our entrepreneurs run the business. So we don't dictate. What we do is provide strategic uh, direction. Now, if you know, we, we have a CapEx budget approved for 2018, if you're, you, you want to go buy a, a semi you know, and it's outside of this CapEx budget, you just come to the board and, and ask for approval and you just have a business case as to why we want to do it. But it, it, you know, the, the, so the, the reason that we put metrics in place, if we have something like that, is because you know, we're, we're not there day to day. We're not running the business. Uh, we want the business owner to really manage the business for long-term growth, not for to, to be so short-sighted for short-term gains in terms of uh, in, in earn out. So 
Well, no, I think it's a, that's a huge point. And I think that's also one of the things that's different between you guys and a lot of the people that are deploying capital extremely fast and trying to flip companies. Um, and I think, you know, so, cause I want to come back to life after, which I know um, the, the second round of this uh, series will be with Mark and you, and we'll, we'll get a really good peer into it, but I want, so I want to come back to that, but let's talk about your perception. So we've gone through the, the client concentration, some of the kind of the inner operational stuff and the finances, but now let's switch to the team and the the employees and the, the executive team, because you've mentioned that you're partnering with teams, not necessarily, I mean, because it's yep. high value for everybody. So when you're doing the due diligence or you're doing that, like you're, you're assessing a company, what are the things that you're looking for and what is the best case scenario and what is the, the, the things that you see a lot of people doing wrong as far as it comes to key employees and, and personnel? Yeah. Um, you know, well, given the fact that we work with smaller companies, generally speaking, what we see is the executive management team is the business owner. Um, you know, it's, it's he or she filling all the different positions, you know, and, and you laugh, but it's, but, but it's true. Um, to the extent that they have someone, it's either a VP of sales and marketing or a COO. What we've seen historically is business owners generally under hire in the controller CFO position. They look at it more as a cost, whereas operations are going to drive revenue, sales and marketing are going to drive revenue, and uh, the controller or CFO is just a cost that I have to have. What they don't realize is how important that business is, given that the financial statements are the language of business, Mm -hmm. um, and where a strong controller or CFO could come to the business owner and say, you know, if we do A, B, or C, you know, I, 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 I've been looking at the numbers. We're looking at, you know, moving forward for, for the next year. Um, you know, we, we, we can buy this piece of equipment and accelerate depreciation, you know, which would help our cash flow, um, you know, moving forward. Or if we're, you know, if, if we can make some adjustments through operations or sales and marketing and throughput, we can drop this down to the bottom line. Um, so we've, we've seen that. When we're going through uh, our, our diligence, what we like to do is, is really spend some time with people. We, we like to see tenure. We like to see how they interact together uh, culturally. You know, how, how is the organization, are, are everyone's interests aligned? Um, are, are people looking out for the best interests of the business or are they looking out for themselves? We don't want I people. We want team. We want we. And we, we use a, a tool called the predictive index um, that really helps evaluate whether a person, it's not necessarily the right person, but are they the right fit for the position? Are they in the right seat on the bus? So a business owner would answer some questions, you know, uh, for your particular business. And we, we, we did this with Mark and his team, and he can touch on it further if, you, if he wants. But we, we had Mark fill out um, the survey and questions. What is the successful VP of sales and marketing look like for your organization? And then that's, fits out a, a, a certain pattern. So now when we go to evaluate either somebody that, that, that we have to, to hire or somebody that's in that current position, do they fit that specific pattern? And then the business owner has to decide either, no, they don't. And this is what we're going to do um, to, to try to get them there. And you, you, usually it's not the best course of action or you know that person doesn't fit, but this is exactly where they fit. And this is where they'd be the most happy. So the, the you know the predictive index really it's it's about needs and behaviors. So mm-hmm. it's really understanding an individual's needs, 
and and their needs are going to drive their their behaviors and in turn their success or failure in a particular role in a business. So, it, it, and then we use that to really look at overall at, at a team, the team dynamics, because you, you, you always want to have some different personalities and different functions, and that way they work better holistically as an organization. Well, I think you hit on a lot of really good uh, key points there. And the, going back to your CFO controller uh, point, you know, we specifically, we went through like four. <laughs> My dad was like, oh, let's just yeah. hire the $8,000 person that is, you know, is filling out like, <laughs> you know, like random forms. And, you know, we did that, you know, and we, run, we got a hundred employees. And so, you know, there's this, I think there's this, so with the CFO controller perspective, you know, you had mentioned, you talked about forecasting, it's really strategy, right? So I mean, whether you've got, you know, an accounting manager or controller who's, you know, historically just, you know, filling in data and like, you know, logging what's happened before. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're looking for or someone that's got that is strategically thinking, forward thinking, giving strategies on the cash flow, the uh, the, the sales, the operations, yeah. everything, right? I mean, it's way different than just an actual you know bookkeeper. Yes, a, a CFO, and sometimes you'll find this in a controller, but you know, m- more of a CFO is strategic in their thinking. The others are tactical. You know, it's it's giving the CEO numbers. Here's here's a monthly report. Here's a quarterly report. Whereas the CFO is going to the CEO of the organization and really being more strategic about their thought process when looking at at the numbers. Well, and and I think the biggest, you know, whether it's and it's the whole executive team. There's this, uh, and I and this might lend some um, some insight on your guys's process and the value that you you guys bring or a partnership for an entrepreneur down the road, but. There's this whole mental hurdle that I've watched us go through and I watch a lot of our clients go through where, okay, this is great. You know, like essentially getting outside of the lifestyle business, you know, you're, I mean, you get to that 500 million in EBITDA and you're trying to get to the two, three, four, you know, you hire three to four people that all of a sudden are pulling down a buck 50, maybe 200 grand with bonuses yeah. to it. And all of a sudden it's literally coming out of your boat budget or your cabin budget or your, you know, all these things are, yeah. Your investments, so it's, a, <laughs> it's an immediate investment or it's, it's hitting the cash flow. But explain, you know, for, for the business owners who are, are on that kind of brink, how the short term expense or investment in the cash flow will impact the value or the multiple that they would potentially get and or, and or in between there too. Yeah, you, you know, so from from our perspective, when we look at a business, so I'm, I, I'm looking at one uh, right now that uh, the, the business really doesn't have, uh, you know, t- to our point, doesn't have a CFO or a controller. You know, they have a, a, a bookkeeper. Now it's a, hot, it's a very profitable business. It's smaller in, in revenue than we typically like. It's $6 million in revenue, but two and a half of EBITDA. And they don't have a, a controller or a CFO. So we need somebody in, in, in that role. If, if we're going to grow the business and look strategically, so, you know, what, what, what we're going to do is, you know, when, when I proffer an offer to, to the owners, I, I'm not basing it off of 2.5 of, of EBITDA. I'm basing it off of 2.35 <laughs> because I'm adding back that, that, that person that should be in the business moving forward. Now, they, they've gotten away with it, you know, for, for the, you know, the, the life of, of their company, but moving forward in, in, in order to grow, that's a position that is, is needed. So if somebody's hiring, you know, in, in, in front, uh, ahead of the curve when they're ready, there, there's going to be no reductions for EBITDA. I would encourage business owners not to manage a business to a, a, a P&L and be so numbers driven, 
you know, where it's, it's going to affect their boat, you know, <laughs> because it, it, it may, it may affect your, your, your boat payment today, but it's going to afford you a house in Vail or a house down in Florida, you know, uh, moving forward because now, you know, you're associating a multiple to it. So you're looking at that $150,000 today, but associate a five times multiple to it. And that's different. Grand. <laughs> yeah, you got it. You know, so that's, that's what it is to a business owner. So I, I would say, don't be penny wise and pound foolish, you know, but it's, it's also calculated growth. You know, as, as you're growing your business, you know, sometimes in the smaller businesses, you don't need those $150,000 people, you know, but, but, but have somebody in place that could e- either you can grow and mentor and really get to that talent level of the $150,000 person, or, you, you know, wait, wait until your, your company is able to absorb um, mm-hmm. that. I, I would tell you at two and a half million dollars of EBITDA, I think you can really absorb a controller and you should <laughs> you have had think, one. You think um, so. <laughs> right? Yeah. You, you know, if you're at $500,000 of EBITDA, I, I get it, you know, bookkeeper, but then as your organization continues to grow, don't let your organization outgrow your people because you're going to, to, to suffer later on. So, and I think that's it kind of brings into your model is let's kind of uh, switch in and move along to the integration and how you fill those gaps, right? Because I think this is why it's so important to understand for these entrepreneurs that are sitting across from a private equity firm or a potential buyer, what value are they going to bring? Like you said, there's a lot of money out there and there's a lot of really dumb money where there's no there's no value other than the, the capital and versus someone that's going to strategically fill gaps. So as you've gone through this due diligence process and you've kind of assessed where the holes are in the ship, you know, how do you then, you know, what is it? So the owner's mindset, how important is that? And then as you start to fill these gaps, how do you interact and what's the integration look like as you continue to move forward? Yeah. So um, I, I would say it, it varies depending on the company's need, needs, but we're not dictatorial. What, what we do from a board perspective uh, is provide strategic direction. You know, we look at Five to six hundred businesses a year. Uh, we invest in one or two, so we're very, very selective in the businesses that we look at. So if we're looking at five hundred businesses a year over twenty-five years. Um, you know, that's almost what is that? Fifteen thousand businesses, uh, twelve thousand five hundred, something like that. Over yes, um, over a, a, a period of years. So we've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, we also have senior operating partners. One's run 17 different businesses, one's run three, and the other's run two uh, in, in varying end markets and industries where we have connections, where we've been in the industry before. How can we accelerate growth? Um, how can we mentor uh, the, the, the CEO, the business owner? You know, can we answer those questions? You know, and Mark can actually tell you, you know, what, one of the things that he drove at, at, at TGC is, uh, is you know, What's what's near and dear to our heart, Ryan, is is traction by Gino Wickman and running the mm-hmm. entrepreneurial operating system, mm-hmm. um, and it, that helped Mark re- really from a strategic direction standpoint. You know, as it was really just him and a COO, and in the first year we hired a VP of Sales and Marketing, uh, a, a CFO, and a VP of Supply Chain. In in year number one, did three facility moves. Okay, wow. Uh, did an ERP wow. implementation integration and grew the business during that time frame. So, you, you know, it, it's kudos to Mark and his team to being calculated to walk before they run and being able to get everything done. If they, if they didn't have a plan in place, it wouldn't have been successful. So Mark and I talk 
really casually, casually just it, 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 at least once a week. That's not a, a, a cadence for us. Um, it, it, it just happens, you know, just, just pick up the phone or he'll pick up the phone and say, Hey, you know, this is what's going on with the business. Any thoughts? Or I'll pick up the phone and just say, Hey, you know, what's, what's going on? Do you want to go to dinner this weekend? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, we, we have monthly reporting, uh, and then we also have quarterly board meetings. Uh, so that's, you know, our, our, our communication and cadence. Well, I think you you were saying that. I mean, it's just it's a partnership, and I, and I think this is you know give give me your perspective, Bobby, on like the mindset of entrepreneurs, right? So obviously, Mark is still enjoying and looking in in to the future and having fun. Where how many times? Oh, well, know, we well, hope so. We'll hear from him. Yeah, yeah, I'll get it straight from Mark's mouth. But um, you know, versus the, I guess where I was getting with that is you know you look at all these business. I mean, that's a significantly high volume of businesses that you're looking at. And how many times do you see it when, you know, someone might have a good business, but they're just done. And you look at them as an individual and that literally will decelerate yeah. because they're, they're burnt out and you're, you're essentially, they want to drop the bag in your lap. I mean, how does that, I mean, how quickly can you assess that? And, you know, I think it's important that people look way ahead of time so they don't get to that. But I mean, tell me what, yeah. how do you feel when you see that? We feel that we're going to run in the complete opposite direction. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, right. Right away, if if we see a business owner that that's like that, so for for us, when we're focusing on on leverage recaps, where we're partnering with incumbent ownership. If a business owner is fifty years old, okay, now that business owner has a lot of run room to go in in their career, and they want to sell us their business, and they don't want to participate in the equity, or they don't want to continue to run the company. What do you know that we don't know? It's a first sign that 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 just provides us with some agita and. And it, it may be, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. It, it, it just provides this, this immediate lack of, uh, of trust that, that they know something that we don't know. Now, if, if a business owner is 65 or 70 years old, I get it, you know, so, <laughs> certainly understand, you know, and, and then what, what, what you have to do is, you know, for, for example, that business um, that I, I discussed, six million in revenue, two and a half of EBITDA, that business owner is 65 years old. He's lived you know, outside of the, the, the state down South for the last 12 years. Now, I think he's important to the business from he's provided strategic direction for the business, but the day-to-day operations and everything that's been going on, he hasn't been there in 12 years. You know, he's 65, he would like to retire. So I understand that. What I would l- l- like to do though, and this is how I, you know, I, I would present it is, you know, I, I'm going to pre- present him an offer and I also want him to um, I, I'm going to provide an incentive for him to have 5% of the business moving forward. And now it's, it's not a ton. It's not 20, 30 or 40%, but, but I don't want him to walk away day one. I would like him to be a board member and I want him to be a vested board member where he can still, I mean, he's been in the industry for 30 years. I don't want that walking away day one. You know, we're, we haven't been in that market for 30 years. We, we will never know a much as much about a particular business as a business owner does, and we're smart enough to realize that. What we can do is, from our experience in different businesses, provide business best practices, um, open up um, you know doors to to new industries, to new customers, to lean manufacturing, to to, to EOS. You know, pr- provide value in, in in different ways outside of that business owner's box that they've been in for 30 years. But in terms of getting in that box, we will never know that box as well as they do. Yeah, no, So I, we don't want them to walk away day one. 
and I think you, you hit on a bunch of really good points and, the, but going back to the, the, the 50 year old. So let's say, so that I totally get it. Cause I, that's the same, the same thing I would ask is like, what do you know that you, that we don't, why do you want to walk mm-hmm. away? Let's, let's throw a curveball, Bobby. What, what if that was me? I was 50 and I said, here's, I, I want out, but let's say I had in EOS terms, I had an integrator. So a CEO or a general mm-hmm. manager, I had an executive team and it was a passive investment for me. Yeah. Totally then, different, right? then I would say it's, yeah, to, to, totally different. If, if you weren't in the business day to day now, can I ask if you were the visionary? Right. I think that, and, and for the listeners who don't aren't familiar with EOS, the visionary is like the, the, the CEO who's driving the strategic ship. I think that's a good question, right? Where I actually, I'm, I'm uh, working with this uh, gentleman who he literally has an integrator and a visionary and he literally, he's more like the board member now. And he's like, in his, yeah, so he's like in his forties. <laughs> Yeah. And in that situation, we, we are okay with it. Um, you, you know, there's been different situations where we've had a, a business owner that, you know, said, Hey guys, you know, j- just want to let you know, if we're going to do a deal, I go sailing six months out of the year. Are you guys okay with that? And we said, Bill, um, how long have you been doing that? He said, Oh, the last 10 years. I said, then we're good. Right. If the business has performed like this with you on a boat for the last six months, why don't you stay on it for 12? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think for the, for the listeners, don't you think, Bobby, is it, it's a, all about the building a healthy, sustainable business because then it's yeah. just provide you with options because no matter what route you go, you've answered all the questions and, and the concerns and the risks that a buyer would have. Yeah, and you're exactly right. If you have a management team that can run the business without you, both strategically and tactically, it mitigates a lot of the risk for the private equity firm because at the end of the day, most of the risk, it's probably 50-50 in business and the people. You know, And I would much rather invest in a good business with great people than a great business with good people. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday, that's what I would do. So people from our standpoint are vitally important. And if you can have a team that can run your business, it'll help mitigate some of the risk from private equity and you'd be able to to, to really get the value that you deserve for the business. I think that was a very good uh, note as we're wrapping up here. Um, Cause so we're going to have uh, n- the next episode in this series is going to be Bobby and Mark. So Bobby, as we're wrapping up and we, we, we covered a lot of ground here, man, I've had a blast. Is there one thing that you want to highlight that we've already talked about, or if we kind of missed something in the, in the journey, in the process, one thing you want to leave the listeners with? Yeah. You, you know, if, if most of the, the listeners are, are, are business owners, I would just, you know, really encourage them to, to be careful, to be thoughtful in choosing the right partner. Even if it means sacrificing a few dollars up front, you're going to be much happier in the long run. And, you know, really do diligence on, on the private equity firm. Um, like I said a few times too, I would do the QOE beforehand to avoid any uh, retrading that, that that might happen, you know, it, it'll certainly help mitigate that. It, it, it's really value your team. If you have the opportunity to build your team at the right time, I would suggest doing it. Awesome. I really, really had a blast, Bobby. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And for the listeners, we're going to have Mark, who Bobby mentioned a couple times on the next episode, and we're going to uh, be able to figure out if Bobby's full of shit or not. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I'm not. He tells you otherwise. But 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 thanks for having me today, Ryan. Look forward to it. And you, you, you can see, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see the, you know, for the listeners, the dynamic between, you know, private equity firm, it, at least MCM and and their portfolio company. And 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 actually, before we leave, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? 
they, they can call me. Um, my direct dial is 216-514-1843, or my email is bobby, B-O-B-B-Y, at mcmcapital.com. Thanks, Bobby, for coming on the show. All right. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Take care. Thanks so much for sticking in there to listen to the entire episode with Bobby. I think there's a, just a couple of big takeaways I want to highlight. Really looking at your business as an investment and as a product is one of the most healthy things that you can do as an entrepreneur because regardless of how you started your company, whether it was in a basement or a garage or whatever, your ability to build a machine and mitigate risk of transferring that free cash flow and that EBITDA to someone else, no matter who it is, is going to give you the most amount of options to make sure that you're partnering and selling to the right person for the right reasons and the right price. And if you don't like that situation, you can walk away because you built a healthy business. And I think the other thing that I really want to make sure that everybody takes away from this is that if you are asking the right questions of any potential buyer, there's a really big need out there for people to be deploying money and spending it and making investments. So don't be the victim of a six month distraction if you know for a reason why you want to sell for what reasons and you know exactly what kind of partner you want to partner up with, you can interview them and then you can take the control because you've done the due diligence and you know what your business is worth. You've built the machine and you know exactly what kind of potential buyer that you actually want to partner up with. It's the whole goal is to have control because that's why you started your business and the whole goal is to control the outcome for the legacy and the biggest asset that you potentially have in your lifetime. So I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Stick in for part two with Bobby and Mark so you can see what it's really like from the seller's perspective of someone that's open and honest of what the entire process was like and what they're doing now and how that benefited them and all the different challenges that they had. So until next week, go on to iTunes, give me a rating. Otherwise, I will see you next week. 